Prepare to be moved and inspired as I have a conversation with Rob Schwartz, the son of the unforgettable Maury Schwartz. Join us as we explore the profound themes of love, loss, and living joyfully through Maury's last book. Now, whether you're a longtime fan or new to Maury's teachings, you won't want to miss this captivating conversation in this episode of the Executor Help Podcast. This is the Executor Help Podcast. Learn how to settle an estate, pick an executor, and avoid family fights. For more information, go to davidede.com. Now here's your host, David Ede. So with me here on the Executor Help Podcast is Rob Schwartz. He is a writer, a producer, an entrepreneur. From one researching him, he's also a world traveler, but we're going to get to that. He's also the editor of The Wisdom of Maury, Living and Aging Creatively and Joyfully, written by his dad, Maury Schwartz. Yep. It's that Maury Schwartz of the amazing book, Tuesdays with Maury. Before we get any further, doing research on you, Rob, I know you're from Boston. I know you're a Boston sports fan. Um, so I want to I want to gauge how we're going to how we're how we're heading here. So that means you're a, a Celtics fan. Is that correct? That's correct. Does that not mean that you're they're, they're in a great position right now? But yeah, I am. Oh, okay, so at the time of taping, they're not doing so hot. Are you a Red Sox fan? Are you, are you absolutely okay? Absolutely. This one we're going to have a problem. Are you a Bruins fan? I am a Bruins fan, though not you know there are some crazy Bruins fans in this town, and for me, it's really about the Red Sox and uh, okay. The- but but I like the Bruins too. Uh, okay, of course. Being shake no original six. I think it, you're in Toronto or Montreal. No, excuse me. Hey, bite your tongue, Matt. Sir, sir, please. Sorry, sorry, sir. sorry. Let's first off. I thought we were going to have a problem. You're not big of a Boston fan. Born and raised yeah. in Montreal, and yeah. and and Montreal and Boston. It does have a a a long storied. Um, not like Toronto, which really doesn't count. And I don't have a lot of listeners in the Toronto area. <laughs> Doesn't calm matter. Down, calm down. So, so I just wanted to know how we, were, how this was going to go if, as a Bruins fan, but it's okay. Um, yeah, it's so- okay. I mean, you guys, if that's the rivalry you're concerned about, I mean, you guys have dominated us. Even, Thank you. Even okay, very recently, we beat you like once in the playoffs. But I mean, <laughs> the, the rivalry is fairly lopsided in your favor. Well, well, a quick story: the last time the Bruins won the Stanley Cup, a friend of mine is he's in. Um, sports media so he gave us tickets to the nhl awards and that was the year that the bruins won so i had to sit there in las vegas in the auditorium while they trotted out the 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 cup and chara was grabbing it i i, I was right, choking right. i was i, that, I couldn't that would be that would be painful for you as it would be if i had to watch the canadians raise the cup again but which we've on. done a lot how many times 27 cups uh, we lost count we haven't won since 93 but anyway we don't like yeah. to brag Anyway, so it, I just want to know where we were headed with that. So first off, I want to thank you so much for being here. This is this is such a great honor because of what your your dad had helped so many people. The book, the first one, Tuesday with Maury, I remember listening to it on my way uh, uh, as an audio book, and I was uh, moved and touched by it. And I was so excited to have you on because of now with the wisdom and more of Maury. For those who don't know, and you know, millions of people came to know about your uh, your father, Maury Schwartz, through Tuesdays with Maury, which was written by Mitch Ablam. Uh, Mitch's book has a different approach to this book that you've come out with, or it's edited based on your dad. So, yeah, I know it's sort of the bookends for each other. For the people who don't anything don't know anything about Tuesdays with Maury, could you just give share a little bit of the premise of it? 
Sure, sure. Tuesdays with Maury was a book written by Mitch Album, who at the time was a sports writer. He was an ex-student of my father. My father was a professor at Brandeis University here in the Boston area. Mitch had graduated in the 70s and had been a favorite student of my father. They had had a close relationship and he vowed to stay in touch. And then for 17 years, there was literally no contact whatsoever between them. And then Mitch saw my father on Nightline with Ted Koppel, which was a huge news magazine show in the 90s, the early 2000s. It's a long time ago now. Ted Koppel retired in 2005. And Mitch came back. He met my father every Tuesday for three months and asked him a lot of questions about what is important in life, values, how to live. And he decided the information was so valuable that he would write a book. And of course, the book became this incredible bestseller, complete, you know, shock to all of us. My father was not famous in his lifetime. He was a prof at uh, Brandeis University. And I mean, he wrote some academic work that was well received, and we can talk about that, but he wasn't well um, famous in his lifetime. Tuesdays with Maury was on the bestseller list, uh, New York Times bestseller list, five years consecutively, sold 18 million copies. It's considered the best-selling memoir of all time. It's been it's in forty languages. Um, there was a movie uh, and there was a play. Mitch has also written a play, which is constantly oh. performed around the country and around the world. And I can talk about that as well because I often do Q and A after the play because people are so interested in my dad. Right. So and now to complete the bookend, there's the wisdom of Maury, living and aging cr- creatively and joyfully. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to edit this book and, you know, where was it and what was the circumstances that you stumbled upon to find it? Sure, sure. It is kind of an interesting story. So um, my personal journey, uh, I'll start from the beginning. Uh, I traveled around Asia in the early, uh, sorry, in the late 80s, and I came back to Boston and spent three months in Boston in in the summer of 1989. And that's exactly where my father was writing this book. So I was able to talk to him and hear his ideas and he could bounce them off me. And we had a wonderful time discussing the book. Then I moved to Japan. Um, My father got ill with ALS. I traveled between Japan and the United States and Boston to spend time with him. He passed away. I became a journalist in Japan. I was doing pretty, pretty um, successful journalism journalistic career, still traveling back and forth between Japan and the United States to spend time with my mother. And my mother kept the house that we had in Newton, Massachusetts, just as it had been when my father was alive. So he had a study that was filled with books. I used to sit at his desk, write my articles. And one day I just pulled open the desk drawer that my father of my father's desk that had been untouched since his death, which was at this point, easily seven or eight years before. And I found this script. Yeah. And it's fully bound. It had a cover on it. It wasn't just like some loose leaf papers. It was bound like a book and big typewritten papers. So, you know, A4 size, letter size papers. And when you you first when you when you first saw it, what did you think? Mm -hmm. What what came over you? Like, was it like was it finding treasure? Like it was like. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was like finding treasure because. I remembered it wasn't something that was foreign to me. I remember discussing it with my father and him writing it. I had all these memories came rushing back. So it wasn't like, oh, what is this? I need to figure out what this is. I knew exactly what it was. 
And I also knew immediately that we would have an opportunity to do something with it because Tuesdays with Maury at this time was probably still on the bestseller list or maybe had just fallen off. I found it around 2002, 2003. Right. And yeah, it was like finding, you know, buried treasure. It was like, oh my God, I have the opportunity to do something with this and to, you know, continue my dad's legacy. Yeah. Did you, when you started to read through it, did you start to hear your father's voice? It, it's Absolutely. like you Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. I could hear his voice in every word that was written there. And, you know, my father loved to write. He loved to talk. He loved to think. He was a professor, you know, a social psychology. So some points are was were fairly verbose. I had to do a lot of editing of this text. I edited maybe five or six different occasions. And, and the key point for me in editing the text was to maintain my dad's voice. That was the most important thing. And I think that, that I have done that. I think that people who have read Tuesdays with Maury will, uh, my dad's voice will be familiar with him. I should add that you mentioned this is a bookend to Tuesdays with Maury. They are very much complimentary because Tuesdays with Maury is a very thin volume. Mitch wrote it that way on purpose. It's super readable. I think anybody could read Tuesdays with Maury in a day or two. The ideas are very direct and very concise, very succinct. This book is more discursive. My father is writing about his thoughts in more paragraph discourse, much sort of longer um, pieces of writing. And there's lots of different stories and poems and newspaper articles, magazine articles that were inspiring him that illustrate the point he's trying to make. So there's a lot of material in this book. Yeah. So in some ways, it's, you know, it's like the opposite end of the spectrum from Tuesdays with Maury. The ideas are the same or similar. He's he's putting forth similar concepts, but he's exploring them a lot deeper right. than Tuesdays with Maury. Yeah. So from the time you, you found the book and you read it, the first time you you found it when you read it. Did you read it a couple of times? When did, where did the idea come to you that, you know what, I need to share, because I know he probably did want to share it with the rest of the world at the time. Uh, what, what, what was the process for you to say, you know what, okay, let's do this? Right. Well, there was a couple of different things involved there. Certainly, I read it, and I made notes while I was reading it. I Because I, I'm a journalist, and an editor. I actually was an editor at uh, NHK World in Tokyo, which is the English language channel for the Japanese public broadcaster NHK, which is the biggest, most powerful news station in Japan. Um, and I was an editor, a script editor there. So I have an editor's mind. So of course, I read it with that in mind. But in terms of the process, my mother was extremely important in that. Of course, my mother was the one who can control my father's estate. So in a sense, she had control of this manuscript. So I had to consult with her. What did she want to do? How did she want to handle it? And we had many long discussions over a very long period of time. She was also instrumental in helping me edit it because she had edited all of my dad's academic work, which was published in like the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And he wrote some books that were extremely well received. In fact, one was a watershed in the field of social psychology. It's called The Mental Hospital. It was published in 1954. I mentioned this. I write two essays in this book, The Wisdom of Maury. I write a beginning essay and an ending essay. And I mentioned my dad's background and his academic um, accomplishments. 
the, the mental hospital was a huge watershed in social psychology and made him kind of a superstar in the field of social psychology. Um, and my mother had edited that in addition to other books that he had written. So she had a really good handle on how to edit his writing and she helped me a lot. We also had to discuss how I was gonna present this book, how we were gonna work on it and, and et cetera. So this took a long period of time because I was still living in Japan. I still had a very active journalistic career in addition to working for a TV station that I mentioned, NHK World, mm -hmm. I was the billboard bureau chief for um, in Asia. And you know the, that's a lot of work to, to report for Billboard magazine. As you probably know, it's the music industry yeah. magazine of record. And I did that for 14 years, a little less, a little less than that, maybe 13, 13, 14 years, right around there. Um, so I had a big career going. So I was kind of editing this on the side and preparing it and discussing with my mom, traveling back and forth between Japan and Boston. You know, it, it took us a long time, but I think that the timing is right now. And it's uh, been edited in the proper way that my father would be happy with. So I'm I'm really pleased to present it to people now. So when you, when you found it, because this is just like mind blowing to me, it's just like you you find it, you read it, dad's talking mm -hmm. to you. Yes. And so then you said, mom, look what I just found. And then how did that, how did that go? Well, I mean, she, it wasn't like I was introducing something that she knew nothing about. Right. My father had worked on this book for four years from 1988 to 1992. And actually, this part is really surprising to people. He was actually not able to get it published in his lifetime because he hadn't written any books for the general public. All of his stuff had been academic work. Oh, he wasn't famous and he didn't have any contacts in the publishing world. He didn't really, he wasn't very savvy in the general publishing world. So he tried a little bit and, you know, he was still teaching some courses at Brandeis. He was retired at that point. And we can talk about that because that was kind of an impetus for him to write this book. Right. Um, and then shortly after that, he got ill. I mean, he finished writing it in 1992 and essentially he started getting ill in 1993. And we got the diagnosis in 94, but we're all agreed that he was definitely displaying symptoms of the illness in 1993. And I'll just give you an example, because my father loved to dance. He was very light on his feet. Even as, you know, an elderly person, he would go out and dance. And around 1993, he started to stumble and tire out really easily and didn't feel like dancing. And we all thought it was very odd. And then later we figured out that was ALS. That was the beginning of his ALS, right? right? When you lose good control of your limbs, that's the first thing that goes. Yeah. What inspired him to write the book? So basically the story is my father was a prof at um, Brandeis and he was one of these people that was just filled with life, as you can probably tell if you've read Tuesdays with Maury, just vivacious, lots of energy, and, you know, always dealing with, with college students. So people who were very young, either, you know, 18 to 22, or some graduate students may be older than that, but people generally in their 20s. So he was always surrounded by youthful people. And he never thought of himself as an elderly person. He always thought of himself as just somebody, you know, who loved life. And then in 1986, at the age of 70, he was 70 in 1986, the university forced him to retire. This doesn't exist today in the university yeah. system, but it did then. And then he realized that the university 
And society at large viewed him as an elderly person. He didn't view himself as an elderly person, but he realized he was viewed that way. And as soon as he realized that he was viewed that way, he had to think about what does that mean? And why did he feel uncomfortable with that? And he realized that society at large and he himself had internalized these ageist ideas that, you know, somehow being old is a bad thing and you should just go away and sit in a corner and do nothing with your last few years. Just get out of people's way, basically. And he thought that this is so wrong and so poisonous. And this time in your life when you're retired or what have you, you know, whatever, when you're advancing in years can be the most wonderful, joyous time in your life. You have freedom, you have experience in life, you have knowledge, you know what you like, you know what you don't like, you have um, interests that you can pursue. So he thought, I need to communicate this to people, that these ageist ideas are so wrong and so poisonous, and I want to help people become more vibrant and joyous and creative in their you know, advancing years. And that's what he set out to do. book resonated with me. I'm 63 years old. How old do you, can I ask how old you are? How old are you? Well, almost the same age. I'm a couple of years younger than you. Yeah. Okay. So it resonated with me. I've been a financial advisor for close to 40 years, and I've seen the progression of not only where I am in my life, but my clients when they're going into retirement and the friends around me and how it everything has just seemed sort of changed. And I think it probably sped up even more because we went through COVID. I see things differently now. And, and that's why the book resonated with me reading it, because it had me nod and say, yeah, I can see this. I can see this in me. And I can see, um, you know, what other people are struggling with when they reach a certain age. You know, uh, my friends will be arg- not arguing, but we'll see we'll say younger people. And we don't want to sound like we're grouchy old men, but we'll say, you know what, what's wrong with this younger generation and that sort of thing. But the book spoke to me in terms of, I need to look at, I think I live my life pretty joyously. I've very been blessed, but I, I want to see the same thing for other people. And I think that's what your your dad uh, your your dad's teachings has brought out and should make people think about. It's It's not that bad to be old and and to be aging because you have so much more to give and, and a lot of people have a lot of people i know have given up they're just happy yeah. just to you know sit at home or just look out the window and be miserable and, and it's yeah. hard you hit the nail on the head my father's trying to inspire people because it's one thing to say like this is a great time in your life that's not necessarily going to change somebody's attitude but in this book he's got stories and poems and articles and all sort of creative stuff in addition to his ideas that's saying, you know, don't give up, pursue what interests you. And if you're in a rut, try this. There's a lot of techniques and strategies in this book to try and shift gears, to be more joyous, to be more creative. And, you know, he lists them out and he talks about them all. And one may strike a chord with you and one may not. So if the one that doesn't strike a chord, just leave it be. But the ones that do strike a chord, hopefully those will help you. And, you know, it's hard for people to change. It's certainly hard for people to change overnight. If somebody is staring out the window thinking, you know, I'm retired, my life is over, and they read this book, hopefully it will resonate and, you know, it'll it'll um, marinate with them. And eventually, when it's time is right for them, they can move forward and and be more creative and more joyous. And there's it, the book is so rich. There's so many chapters in it. There's so many ideas. And it really kind of has two 
point. So it kind of depends on your personality, which is going to be more meaningful for you. There's psychological analysis in there of how society age, uh, what he, my father calls age caste, which he is a, his coinage from the word type caste, which means pushes people aged people or elder, you know, um, people advancing in age into certain roles and tries to keep them in those roles. And he says that this is, you know, you don't need to obey society's like mistaken ideas and a whole analysis of aging and I'm uh, sorry, ageism and how people internalize that really poisonous idea. So there's that kind of psycho psychological analysis of that's meaningful to you. And then on the other side, there's real practical tips where he says, try this, do this. Here's an example of a 95-year-old guy who graduated from college and plans to be a doctor. Here's an example of an 81-year-old guy, and I know that you, that you like this one, yeah. who graduated from high school. Not only was he 81 years old, but he had physical challenges as well. These are meant to inspire people who come you know, up with these ideas, these harmful ideas like, oh, I'm too old to do anything, or I don't have the energy that I used to have. Yeah, sure. You don't have the energy you used to have, but you still have some energy. You're still alive. You can still think there's no reason not for you to make the absolute best of, you know, your life at this point. Like you said, you're slightly younger than me. How does how do you look at your own aging? Yeah, I mean, I think that I'm uh, very much like my father in that I don't really feel my age. I feel very energetic. I feel very connected to ideas. And as you noticed, or, or sorry, as you mentioned in the beginning, I have a lot of different projects. I wear a lot of different hats. I've got different um, events and companies that I'm a producer in. We can talk about those. There's one particular that I'd like to talk about um, that has to do with mental health. We can get to that. But, so let's, um, wait, 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 let's talk about that. Go ahead. Sure. Okay. Okay. Well, I want to answer your question fully. So Okay, go I'll ahead. Finish and then we'll move on to it. In addition to being like my father, I don't think I have to go through the stage of like, oh, I'm old. Uh, I'm not going to be able to do anything because, you know, I've taken my father's wisdom on board and I've taken the wisdom of this book on board. And I realize that, you know, no matter what age I am, I'm going to be able to live my life in a joyous way. And, uh, you know, I feel like I've ta really taken my father's uh, lessons to heart. And I spent a lot of time with the material in this book, right. a lot of, time, as I said, edited five or six times. So, so, so you could see, so as you were re, uh, uh, editing it, you were also nodding because it would also take you off track and think about your own life. Of course, of so, course. Yeah. So, I mean, I think any wisdom does that. Yeah. Yeah. So that led you to uh, the, the mental health uh, event that I know, I think it's in, because I, again, I was doing my research on you. So I think it's in uh, Los Angeles in 2024. That's correct. In Los Angeles in 2024. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. We're going to have a charity festival called One Topia. We've already set up a foundation, a One Topia Foundation. All of the money is going to be dispersed to mental health groups and mental health education throughout the country. It's 100% benefit. Nobody's getting paid. I'm not getting paid to work on this. I'm working with two fantastic producers um, who, uh, you know, they will... Uh, we can talk about them once we start publicizing the festival. We haven't announced it yet. We haven't announced the artists yet, but it's going to be a musical festival. It's going to feature popular artists. And we're also going to try and 
you know, put a lot of education. It's going to be a festival, lots of booths, lots of education around mental health, and it's going to raise money for mental health. It's called OneTopia, um, O-N-E-T-O-P-I-A. We have a website up, onetopia.com. We're going to hold it in the Los Angeles area in 2024. We hope to make it an annual event to grow the festival and to grow uh, the foundation. And this is purely, as I said, benefit. We want to address the mental health crisis in this country because we feel there is a mental health crisis. And yeah. I mean, I, I can't speak so much about Canada. I haven't spent that much time there. But in the United States, I feel there really is a mental health crisis. And this is an attempt to focus the spotlight on that and bring other people involved. You know, it's not about us. It's about getting other people involved so we can all address this issue collectively as a society. And with all the different causes there are in the world, what what is it about mental health that you felt that you wanted to get behind this particular issue? Right. Well, there's there's a number of answers to that question. And, and the first one relates directly to what we're talking about today. I mean, my father's book is a lot about mental health, is about um, aging people who are depressed and the society as whole. I think depression is a huge, a huge issue and mental health, you know, um, mental illness and, and the loss of mental health is a huge issue as a society as a whole. And is my father's life work more or less? As I mentioned, he um, published this book in the 1950s about mental health care called the mental hospital. He was a social psychologist. That's essentially his entire life work. So it really speaks to what I'm doing with this book. And larger than that, I mean, I think it's one of the issues in our society that one affects everybody across every spectrum of race and gender and sexual orientation. Everybody is affected by this. And it's a huge problem in so many different ways. I mean, we could talk about so many different aspects of the mental health crisis from just people being depressed or people, you know, being miserable or people committing suicide to killing other people. As we know, there's a there's a crisis in this country with mass shootings and, and murder, and that is deeply related to people's unhappiness and people's mental health. I mean, we don't want to get too political here. Some people define it. Everybody who does that is mentally ill. Whether that's the case or not, it's not really the point. The point is, is that we have a problem and we have to address it. And it goes from, you know, horrific acts of violence to the person who just sits in their room and does nothing because they can't get it together to do anything. And we want to address this across all of the spectrums. Do you think this has come to the forefront? It's it's sped up because of the pandemic. People were left to, you know, put in situations that they've never been before, that the world had basically had shut down and whether you had no sort of communication with others or you spent so much time with yourself, you didn't know what to do with yourself that it affected people's mental health. Yeah. I mean, that, that's another question that that's very deep. I would say, yes, of course, we can see that to a certain extent, but maybe not as much as we think. I mean, certainly on a sort of more, uh, subtle level. Lots of people, you know, felt cut off, felt depressed. And that's also a big part of this book. One of the strategies that my father suggests for elderly people is the problem is that they become isolated, that they become cut off. And of course, that's what you're talking about with the pandemic. So we suggest 
Don't let that happen to you. Go out and make new friends, make new connections. How do you do that? Well, he gives strategies on how to do that. And that's also related to the pandemic. People who were forced to stay alone or, you know, their connections to other people were severed. Certainly that took a toll on their mental health. And but I think that in some ways that we overplay it, Mm -hmm. that it's like it was a limited period and people realize that, okay, this is very exceptional, right? This is a pandemic. It certainly is something that affected people throughout society. And it's also sort of reflective of, of elderly people who become isolated and cut off from the rest of society. And my father offers strategies, particular strategies in this book to combat that. He says, don't sit at home and you know not talk to anybody. Human connection is so important. And he gives strategies how to make you know new human connections, how to make more friends, how to connect with people. And he gives strategies on that. He thinks it's so important to maintain your connections and build new ones. Yeah. So who would you say this book is for? I would say, my generation is probably the baby boomers, but then again, it also could be for a younger generation because they it'll it'll help with and I say a lot uh, that you have family conversations. They'll understand their parents better, and also for the first time, it might be the first time that they think about oh that person's old. Why are they feeling that way? Or I'm going to be there someday, even though the young young people may not even think that that they're going to reach Ooh. our age. Yeah, I agree with all of that. But to tell you the truth, I think it, you know, it even goes beyond that. Of course, the book is called The Wisdom of Mori, Aging Creatively, um, Aging and Living and Aging Creatively and Joyfully. So the living part is for everybody. I think there's young people who are depressed, who don't know what to do with their life. And I think there's a lot of strategies in this book that could help them. Certainly, everything that you said is true. It could help younger people understand older people, could help them have conversations with their parents or their grandparents. All of that is true. And certainly when my father was writing it, he was orienting it towards people in advancing age. I mean, he writes that directly, that, you know, they try to do this to us. I mean, I could read you a section where he writes about ageism where he says society tries to put us in a box, like he's talking to all people over a certain age, whatever the cutoff age you want to think about is. Um, so he's he's orienting it towards them. But I think it can be really helpful to everybody across. I think a teenager could read this book and get a hell of a lot out of it that would help them live their life more joyously. So why, when you said about the ageism, why do you feel that there's uh, such a negative connotation with the word old? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And it's a really pertinent question, because this is very societally based. Other societies are not the same. As you know, as we discussed, I spent a lot of time in Asia. I lived in Japan. I spent a lot of time in China, a lot of time in India. And those societies have a different view of elderly people. They don't look down on them the way that that they are in American society. And I think it's because American society, you know, is so, it's, it's how, how can I express it, based on, you know, success and also fame and beauty and all of those things are aid, are oriented towards youth. We have such a you know glamour glamour society that glamour is so important, and glamour is basically um, re, you know the the province of the young or you know relatively useful people who are seventy or eighty are rarely portrayed as beautiful. I think 
most well, always they well, are. You, you, you could say recently we had Martha Stewart be on the cover of Sports Illustrated at 81. So there is yeah, a, and a that slight was extremely change. Extremely unusual. That yeah. was extremely, it's probably the first time it's ever happened. So it's one of those cases with the great, the great old adage, the exception proves the rule, right? The rule is you got to be 29 and stunningly beautiful to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated once we have an 81-year-old woman and it's you know massive news. It right. just shows how youth obsessed our society is. Yeah. How do you think your father's message in the book is going to help readers find purpose and meaning in their own lives as they age? A lot of strategies in the book to do that. And each person has to decide which strategy speaks to them and which strategy can help them. Obviously, I think they're all valuable, but some people may be like, oh, that's not for me. One of the things that my father talks about is meditation. He thinks meditation is extremely important, especially for elderly people. It helps focus your mind. It helps increase your ability to concentrate on something. It helps you, you know, and that helps you push a new project forward. Just keep ideas in your mind with what you want to do. And it's even been proven through studies that people who meditate, elderly people who meditate on average live considerably longer than people who don't meditate. So I think it's a fantastic strategy. My father investigates it and talks about it from a very American perspective. You know, he's not pushing any religion or any kind of meditation. He's just saying, you know, find what works for you in meditation and do that. And, you know, I think it's wonderful and very important. But some other people may be like, oh, that's not for me. That That's fine. There's a lot of other things in the book that hopefully will be for them. It's funny you should say that. I did read that because I read the book. Uh, I'm like, 80% through. But when I got to that part about the meditation, so recently before I start work every day sitting here at the desk, I meditate for 10 minutes. And you you even though, you know, keep all those noises in your head, but just slow everything down and I do feel once that 10 minutes is over, I feel I do feel a lot more clear. So there's and I never really thought about it because I meditated before, but to get back into the habit, I think it'll help a lot of people. So it's one of the great strategies that's uh, in the book. But, you know, we're let, talking- me, let me just interject. Let me just interject there because yeah. I think meditation is so important. And I want to interject this because people sometimes have a mistaken idea of meditation. It's like, oh, you have to turn off all thought in meditation. And that's, you know, mm -hmm. almost impossible. That's not what meditation is. And it, this is why meditation helps you understand yourself and your own mind. What meditation is, as you said, is to slow things down and recognize the thoughts that you have in your mind and then say, okay, now I'm going to let that thought go. I'm not going to hold on to that thought. We're going to let it go. We're going to try and concentrate on breathing or whatever meditation you're doing. And then another thought will arise and you're like, okay, I just had that thought. Now we'll let that go. So it helps you understand that your mind is constantly generating thoughts jumping around and it you know it it relaxes you and puts you on an even keel that okay maybe every thought that i have in my mind i don't need to jump on it and and you know be anxious about it or what have you but it's wonderful that you meditate and i think there's a lot of resonance between you and i because that's exactly the amount of time 
then I'm comfortable meditating about 10 minutes, 15 minutes at the outside. An hour is really hard. To no, I, I, I can't. Uh, I've been yeah. to uh, some meditation places where it's a half hour and it's hard. You do fully. I, I'm almost falling asleep if it's longer than 10 minutes. So 10 minutes to start the day. That's what I and, and that's due to the book. I started doing that. Uh, it's been over the last week or so. And Wonderful. even though there's all these, these great strategies. And like I said, I see it in myself, friends around me. What do you say to the person who who can't find any joy in aging? They're just they're just miserable. They just don't know. It's it's hard to watch, but at some point you can go down the rabbit hole with them and try to help them. If they if they choose to be miserable and not find any joy, what can you do? Right. Well, I mean that's a great question, and in in some way, you've answered it yourself because if someone chooses to be miserable and really clings to it, then nothing that you do is going to really affect them. If, they, if they're committed to their misery, then there's not a lot you can do. But, but there are strategies in this book. And the first one that I would employ with a person like that is to say, well, you maybe you feel miserable now, but there must be something that gives you joy. What is it? Figure out what gives them joy and then say, okay, Let's try and move towards that. Let's try and develop strategies that'll get us closer to that. Even if we can't jump straight into that, or even if it's something that seems unattainable, we'll move towards it. And of course, they have to have the willpower to move towards it. You can't give anybody willpower. You can't force anybody to do anything. You know, if somebody's absolutely committed to their misery and doesn't want to do anything about it, then it's hard to help them. But the book has strategies. And like I said, we find out what brings you joy and it's different for different people you know and then let's start to move to that and then maybe we can introduce other things that you didn't think about that you may be more open to you know so of course it's a struggle but i think that the book is useful in trying to start people moving yeah and so in your opinion what do you think keeps people from being happy well it's funny you should say that so i'm going to move back to the whole um premise of the book, which is exactly that. You've, you've hit the nail on the head once again. The premise of the book is to investigate what keeps people from being happy and try and eliminate or minimize those stumbling blocks. And I think that a lot of it for elderly people is the loss of their previous life. I mean, people develop meaning in their life by what they do. Not 100%, but to a large extent. So if you're a financial planner, and that gives you joy. It gives you joy to see people, you know, be financially secure, to make them money, to see that they're happy. That gives you joy, right? If you couldn't be a financial planner anymore, and your profession is particular and that nobody can tell you to retire, as long as you have clients, you can continue to work. Not every profession is like that. Some people work for a company that says it's time for you exactly. to retire. Yeah. So if you define your whole life by what you do, and then all of a sudden, that's taken away from you, there's a huge void for some people. And for my father, it was similar to that. It wasn't exactly that, but he was told he had to retire. It wasn't a huge void because he still taught some courses at the university, but it wasn't the same as being a full professor. So he experienced that, and that's why he thought about that, and that's exactly how he came to write this book. So somebody has their meaning of their life taken away, they need to create new meaning in their life. And that is an act of creation. And like I said, the book is about living creatively and joyously. Yeah, that's where I seen where as an advisor, 
I see the clients that, you know, later in life, they might have lost their job. They didn't expect it. I had a client, you know, he went in to work one day and, uh, you know, they were waiting for him in the boardroom, had all his stuff in a box. And he was out the company after 38 years, never got to say goodbye. He's learned to figure out, okay, I'm going to move on with my life because that's not what defined defined him. He likes to curl. He he travels now. He's, you know, uh, golfing, that sort of thing like that, keeping himself busy. But then there's other people who may have, you know, come to retirement, but they don't know what to do with themselves because, like, like I say, like to say to them, every day is Saturday. How are you going to fill those days? And it's long before they reach that final day, you know, where, where they, they're not going to be going to work anymore and have that daily connection. What are you going to do? And you need to think about having the money is that's that's just that's just the byproduct. The most important thing is to have your health. Once you've got your health, what are those things that how are you going to fill those days? And I can see it in different clients. Some embrace it and some are struggling with it. That's and I think that's why they should, you know, read the book and get Absolutely. it sort of figure out. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, it depends on how introspective you are. If you're one of those people that never think about yourself that always think about your job and maybe even the other people who are important in your life, which of course, it's great to think about your wife or your partner or your kids or what have you. But, you know, as we said, when your job ends, then you have to be a bit introspective and say, what gives me joy? What do I enjoy? And what what makes me feel creative and joyous? And you need to know what that is. If you don't know what it is, you need to find out what it is, right? And I think a lot of people in this society are very outwardly focused on success and their job or whatever. And that's why they feel the big void when it's taken away. And hopefully they're strong enough and, you know, vibrant enough to go like, okay, now it's time for me to recreate myself. And if they're having problems doing that, then hopefully, yeah, this book could help them. And I think that even for the people who are doing that, this book could help them become better at it, stronger at it, offer other avenues and et cetera to to do you know be even more creative and more joyous so it sounds as though is that you make getting older as if it's a wonderful thing i think it is oh i hope so i mean that's certainly what my father is aiming towards that quite the opposite of the ageist ideal that it's like the worst time in your life when you're waiting to die it can be the best time in your life my my father says that directly in the book like this can be the best time in your life you have knowledge you have experience, you hopefully have some financial stability, you have freedom, you know, you have accomplishments in your life that you can feel good about. It's not like you're striving to do something that creates your legacy. Now that you've done all of that, you can feel good about it and you can enjoy your life and you can do all sorts of things that that you have never done before. So another area that you cover in the book is coming to terms with your own death. In part two of my conversation with Rob Schwartz, We dig deep into the universal topics of death and grief. Join us as we have an honest and heartfelt conversation about navigating the complexities of loss, finding solace, and embracing the healing power of shared experiences. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. To catch up with all the latest from me, go to davideady.com. There you can follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next time.